Well, we come across our first scripture reading of the day. Uh, we are back in a, a series in 1 Samuel, and while we're uh, preaching out of 1 Samuel, we'll be reading out of the book of Philippians. We're getting near to the end of it here, uh, but as you can see there, the reading is Philippians 4, 1 through 9, and Ashley is going to come and read it for us. Ashley, if you would. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntech to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness to be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We are picking up our series in the book of 1 Samuel. We've been looking at 1 Samuel uh, for uh, a couple months now, and as you can see, uh, we are in 1 Samuel 14 today. Now what you realize about 1 Samuel 14 is it's really long. Uh, you got this extra little bonus insert today because uh, the scripture reading, this, this chapter is quite lengthy, but uh, I really wanted to include it all. It's one story that all kind of hangs together, and we didn't want to break it up or omit any part of it, and so it'll be a little bit longer. You know, settle in for this scripture reading. Uh, Hannah's going to come and read it for us, and then we will get into it together. Hannah. First Samuel 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitob, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. 
if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as if it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing there, here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, I am avenged on my, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. 
Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherous, treacherous, treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was, his, it was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And, Paul inquired, and Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people, all the people, who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to, the, fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he rooted them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malachishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of his firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself.
right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. As I've said from the beginning of our study of 1 Samuel, uh, it's a theological history. And what I mean by that, that phrase is we do believe that 1 Samuel is a true telling of history. We believe these events happen. We believe Samuel and Saul and all the others are real historical figures. But that doesn't mean that 1 Samuel is just sort of a straight historical textbook. There's an angle to the story. Now, not, I don't mean bias that would corrupt the facts or misrepresent something that happened, but an angle. The narrator of 1 Samuel is trying to show us something particular. And what he's trying to show us is God is doing something. God is at work. He's at work in his kingdom. He's at work in the lives of these Israelites. And one of the literary devices the narrator often uses is contrast. Often there'll be two characters set up side by side so that we can, we can see the differences between them. If you remember the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, there was this contrast drawn between Samuel and Eli and Samuel and Eli's, you know, worthless sons. The narrator would be busy telling us, oh, look at Samuel, isn't he so great? Growing in favor with God and the people wearing his, you know, cute little white outfits and, and he's doing great. But Eli's sons, oh, they're terrible. They're stealing sacrifice. They're committing these sexual sins. And then when Saul comes along, there's another contrast that's being drawn. It was hinted at last week. And the contrast is being drawn right now between Saul and his son Jonathan. Saul the king is impulsive and foolish, and really he does what's best for Saul. Or he, he, Saul does what Saul wants to do. Where on, on the other hand, Jonathan is loyal and courageous and humble and a good man. And this story, I think more than any we've covered so far, it sets these two characters, Saul and Jonathan, in contrast. Uh, think of it like, you know, visiting a fancy museum. You know, the kind of museum where there's this whole room, you know, it's usually painted white, um, and, and there's only like one piece of art in there, and you know it's going to be something good, or maybe two, and there's a guard at the door to make sure, you know, you don't spill your, your goldfish onto the priceless piece of art or whatever. So, so picture in your mind this, this white room, you know, perfect directional lighting, and on two stands in the middle of the room are, are these two men, Saul and Jonathan. And what I want to do this morning is sort of take a slow walk around each one, look at who they are, what they're doing in this story. I think there's lessons to be learned from each of them. But more importantly, as we look at Jonathan and then as we look at Saul, what I want, to keep, what, what I want you to kind of keep in the back of your mind is, is the museum itself. And the museum itself sort of symbolizes the work of God through history. If we could go to other rooms in the museum, there would be other men, other women of the scriptures, other people of the scriptures. But what unifies them, what puts them into the museum is God. So after looking at Jonathan, after looking at Saul, we're going to look at how God is at work in this story. So part one, we'll talk about proactive Jonathan. Part two, we'll talk about reactive Saul. And part three is what I've called active God. Proactive Jonathan. Verse 1, it's an average day in Israel when Jonathan's like, hey, how about we make a visit to the Philistine garrison? Now, if you were here pre-Easter when we, when we left off this series, Israel was in a dark place. The Philistines brought this gigantic army into Israel. They've divided into raiding parties that are just sort of roaming throughout the land, you know, causing havoc. The Israelite army, on the other hand, it's getting smaller and smaller. People are afraid. There's poor leadership. They're down to, like, as the text says, 600 men. The Philistines are thousands upon thousands. It's pretty bleak. So on the surface, when we read verse 1, it doesn't make any sense for Jonathan to be feeling aggressive. <laughs> you know, Saul, as we find out later, he's not feeling aggressive. 
But let me tell you a little bit of the geography so you can really picture in your mind's eye what is happening. If you look at verse 4, there's this pass through some high hills, and you've got to think about like there's rocky crags, rocky outcroppings on each side. One crag is called Bozes, and that roughly means slippery. And the other is called Senna, which roughly means thorny. So basically, they've been named because these crags, these, these rocky outcroppings are hard to reach, easily defended, and on each of them is like a fort or a garrison or a cave, some place to, to kind of hang out. And so you got this mountain pass, a fort on each side, and on one side we got the Israelites, Saul and Jonathan and their men, and on the other side there's a Philistine garrison. So Jonathan's big idea is, what if we go down from our fort, go down through the valley across, and go over to the Philistine fort and see what happens? And of course he's going secretly. He doesn't tell anyone what's happening except for his armor bearer. Well, what's he up to? We, we find out in just a moment. If you skip over the, the Saul stuff and jump down to verse 6, Jonathan is going because he wants to see the Lord work. That's what he wants to see God work. Maybe he's tired of the Israelite army not doing anything. Maybe he's frustrated at his father's leadership. Maybe the Lord, by his spirit, is just giving him a good desire. We aren't told. But verse 6 is important for us because Jonathan speaks with this humble confidence. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan doesn't know. It's a humble statement. Jonathan doesn't presume to speak for God. He doesn't insist, oh, I know what God's going to do. He says, let's go, and if God chooses to work, I want to be ready. Further, Jonathan tells his armor bearer that God can work by many or by few. Now, Jonathan being the king's son, we can presume that he would have heard the stories of Samson and Gideon and other judges that God used in these dramatic ways despite enormous odds against them. And Jonathan understands. God doesn't need a lot of people. He just needs a people or a few people. And the armor bearer, he's like, I'm on board. You know, let's go uh, with you, heart and soul. And so they go down from their fort. They go across the valley. And Jonathan tells the armor bearer, Okay, here's the plan. If the Philistines call us up, we'll take that as a sign from the Lord. We should go up and attack. But if the Philistines say, wait, you know, wait down in the valley, that will be a different sign not to, not to attack, not to go any further. I think it's important to note the sign doesn't appear to be something that God told Jonathan. There's no indication of revelation prior to that. This is, this is functioning more on the level of a prayer. God, sort of Jonathan asking God to show them which way they should go. But sure enough, the Philistines call them up. Call them up. Jonathan scales the crag. You know, he's climbing like hand and feet. Like it's not like a walk up. Like he's climbing up and kills 20 Philistines in short order, you know, with, with his buddy. This brings about a panic in the Philistine camp. And all of a sudden, the situation has totally turned. And we learn later in the story, Jonathan's continuing the battle from the front. They're in a forest. They're pursuing retreating Philistines. You know, they're attacking. And he later contradicts the oath that Saul, that Saul took. But that's, that's going to be more about Saul than Jonathan. Jonathan's part of the story is right here. And, I wanna, and I've characterized him as proactive Jonathan because he doesn't wait, but he moves. He doesn't just defend, but he attacks. He doesn't just sit, he climbs. He strikes out in faith and waits for God to answer him or to turn him back. I've actually read a couple books by different authors who've, who've written almost entire books loosely based around Jonathan's actions here. It makes for a fascinating case study. Particularly for people in our tradition, 
reformed Presbyterian types, we aren't exactly known for our proactive risk-taking. You know, let's launch out into the unknown and see what happens. That's not generally how we do things. We don't, we don't have a book of church order chapter that tells us, ooh, let's walk up to a Philistine stronghold, you know, and see what happens. We, we don't have that kind of attitude in general. But possibly for exactly that reason, I think this story can challenge us. And I think this approach to life with God can be tremendously freeing to some of us. Because here's the theological position Jonathan lives by. You can just do stuff. You, you, can just, you can just try something. You can just go take a risk and see if God provides along the way. You don't have to know everything ahead of time. Kevin DeYoung, in his book entitled Just Do Something, is a title that appeals to me, he writes, if, if you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'll be in God's will, so just go out and do something. Jonathan doesn't know if he has it all right. Maybe God will provide. Let's see what the Philistines say. Here is how we'll know if God wants us to turn back or not. Perhaps some of us get stuck over-spiritualizing over life. Or maybe some of us get stuck with a, a too important desire for safety or security. You're free to just go and live. Like, go love God, go love your neighbor, and then you can just take action. You know, think of uh, Grace Gadnell, this church plant that we're trying to do with Frankie and Elena. Frankie and Elena, a couple of you guys are trying to start a church. Will it succeed? Well, we don't know. <laughs> Who knows? What we do know is this. God can use a few people to start a church. He's done it all kinds of times. We also know God can use a whole bunch of people to start a church. He's done that a whole bunch of times, too. The, the Grace Gatineau folks, they can just go and get started. And God will make it clear along the way if he thinks it's a good idea as well. Sometimes churches get stuck in this thinking of, no, we need more staff or more money or more something. And, and when we have that stuff, then we can go and do something interesting or big for God. That's not what this says. God can save by many or by few. The size of the resources isn't really an issue. And if you remember actually last week, the Israelites don't even really have swords. Like Jonathan's got one, Saul's got one, and that's about it. They don't have a lot. But you can just go ahead and get started and see if God provides. And by the way, this sometimes feels risky. Like Jonathan was like, he was fighting real Philistines with real swords. Just because God approved of it, just because God supplied you know, what he needed, doesn't mean the risk was none. But God meets Jonathan's proactive faith with provision. Okay, so that's proactive Jonathan. Let's talk about reactive Saul. In contrast to humble, bold Jonathan, we find Saul in a pomegranate cave. Now, I for one love a good pomegranate. I'm not sure about how you feel about pomegranates. So if I was, if I was choosing a cave, pomegranate cave, decent place to be. Far superior to, say, a mushroom cave, cilantro cave. Not, not into any of those places. Pomegranate cave, pretty solid. But a cave... Not a place for a king. It's not, not where kings should be in the cave. The location suggests hiding, suggests fear. In addition, in verse 3, the, the text carefully tells us, oh, Saul's got someone with us, this guy named Ahijah. Now, he has 600 men, so he could have listed a lot of them, but the narrator says, oh, he's got Ahijah, who's the current priest of the Lord. Ahijah's wearing the ephod. It's this uh, sort of sacred garment of the high priest. Um, so that seems good, right? The high priest is with him. Well, it's not, it's not good, because Ahijah, it says, he's the nephew of Ichabod, the only son of Phinehas. And again, if you've been with us in this First Samuel series, you'll remember Phinehas was a worthless, evil priest. And when he had his son Ichabod, Ichabod means the glory has departed. 
So in summary, Saul's in a cave, he's hiding. His only named companion is the, the, the relative of no glory Ichabod. Samuel is not there. Jonathan, he's off, you know, freelancing, doing his own thing. But this sort of introduction to Saul, there's this hints here that it's not going very well for Saul. Now Jonathan goes and does this thing. Saul reappears in verse 16. He sort of looks out of his cave, or, you know, a scout runs in, like, hey, you got to come see this. The Philistines are fleeing. There's, there's chaos. There's, there's tumult seizing the camp. Saul figures out Jonathan's gone. They do a head count or whatever. The next move in verse 18, if you look, he calls for the ark of God to be brought. Now from this and from some later actions, it appears like Saul is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to seek God. Now, it seems like he's feeling the absence of Samuel, maybe feeling the absence of God's direction. He's trying to make up for it, maybe. We, we, we don't know. We aren't told any of his motives. But he calls for the ark, and he's waiting for it. He's talking to the priest. And as they're talking, it's sort of like, you know, off in the distance, the Philistine camp is just, like, losing it. Like, more and more uproarious. There's, there's battle noises. There's lots of things going on. And in verse 19, Saul just tells the priest, like, just, just stop, stop what you're doing. To, you know, take your hands back. And in verse 20, Saul and the 600, they just you know, rush off into battle. So if Saul was correctly waiting for God and, and calling for the ark was the right move, then he gave up too early and he was unwise. Or Saul didn't need to wait at all and he has delayed unnecessarily and, you know, and their, their victory won't be as great. Either way you want to read it, and I think both readings are fine, this scene is like a B minus, maybe a C plus for Saul. But anyways, they rush off to pursue the retreating Philistines. Saul is excited. We're winning. He takes an oath in verse 24. He basically makes everyone promise, he or he promises on behalf of everyone, not to eat anything until the evening when the battle's done. Now, to give Saul the benefit of the doubt, he, he may be thinking, I don't want the soldiers to stop for plunder, like we're winning. And, and soldiers normally had to provide their own rations when they were out fighting, so you could understand why, oh, you come across a, a great piece of meat or something that you'd be tempted to stop and pick that up. He doesn't want them to stop. He wants them to get a, you know, a big, as big a victory as possible. That's sort of the best possible case for the oath. The worst possible case is Saul is once again being foolish and impulsive and unwise. And he's hamstringing his army when they need sustenance, you know, to chase down these Philistines who are running away. I mean, have you ever done something physically uh, difficult, like all day, and not eaten anything? Like, you just feel awful. You feel terrible. And at the end of verse 28, the people were faint. And in verse 29, Jonathan, as he learns about the oath, he says, Saul has troubled the land, which is a very interesting phrase. That language, a troubler of the land, it's only used a couple of times in the whole Old Testament. And the, most, the, the primary example is this guy named Achan. Now, Achan was a, kind of a nobody, but when Israel invades the land the first time and they take the city of Jericho, they were supposed to set aside every piece of plunder in Jericho for God. But Achan, he sees this great jewelry, this, this, this thing, it's a, a bit of a long story, but he steals it and he hides it in his tent. And by his great disobedience, he brings about a great defeat for Israel. And Joshua, when Joshua finds out, he's, he calls Achan, he says, you are a troubler of the people. You have brought trouble on us. And that's how Jonathan labels Saul. Troubler of the land. It's, it's foreboding. And again, in verse 30, the oath is foolish. It's undercutting the Israelite victory. In verse 31, we get an additional descriptor. The people are very faint now. Verse 32, the people have grown so desperate from hunger that they're not butchering the meat correctly according to God's law. They're just sort of tearing into raw meat or, or possibly eating you know, undercooked meat. 
Saul's foolishness led to a severe temptation and sin for the people. It's not very kingly. It's a big mistake. Now Saul kind of tries to rescue it. He tells them, you know, stop doing that. In verse 34, in verse 35, he builds an altar, presumably to offer a sacrifice for sin or something. But the narrator notes, oh, this is the first time he's ever done that. Not a stirring commendation uh, for a king of Israel. And then in verse 36, Saul has a new idea. What if we go attack the Philistines at night? What if we plunder them all night long? Now... I'm not a military strategist. We, we didn't have that class in seminary, if you can believe it. I think it's an oversight. But, but you have an army. You just fought all day. Not even a very big army. You just fought all day. You won a huge battle. But your army fought without food all day long, so they're exhausted. And now they just ate a gigantic meal. And you're like, hey, you know what's a good idea? If we, if we go chase these guys in the darkness, you know, through the forest and see what happens. Now, do you remember what Jonathan's armor bearer said to him back at the start when Jonathan had this sort of off-the-wall idea? I'm with you heart and soul. This really, this really, this really uh, big encouragement. What does the army say to Saul? I think you've got to read it with a bit, of, a bit of an ironic tone, but ver- middle of verse 36. Eh, do whatever seems good to you. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I guess we could, you know, if you really want to. It's not exactly a stirring vote of confidence for this plan. Now a priest, maybe this is a hija, steps in. He reminds Saul, maybe we should ask God what to do. Saul prays in verse 37. God doesn't answer. To be kind to Saul, again, when God doesn't answer, Saul has the right impulse. He knows God is often silent when someone has done something wrong. So Saul takes another oath. Now, you might have thought he'd learned his lesson about impulsive oath-taking, but no. He lets, I'm going to do it again. I got, I got a better idea this time. He says, if I find out anyone has sinned, even if it's my son Jonathan, you know, foreshadowing, they're going to die. And to show his seriousness, Saul wagers the dearest thing in the world to him, besides his own life, which would be the life of his oldest son. And then there's this whole scene where they cast lots by means of the, the Urim and the Thummim. They are these different colored stones. Basically, it's how Israel was told to, to discern the will of God. You'd ask yes or no questions, and, and basically you'd go through this process of figuring things out. And God's hand guides, uh, guides the casting of the lots, says in the book of Proverbs, and Jonathan is selected. Now importantly, did Jonathan sin against God? No, not that we're aware of. He, he violated the order of a king, but it was an extra-biblical order. Now, the king might kill him for that, but it was not a sin, as far as we can tell. Yet, Jonathan still offers him up. That's in verse 43. Doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't say, well, it was a dumb idea in the first place or anything. He doesn't plead for his life. Noble Jonathan, again. And Saul basically says, okay, thank you for confessing. I'm going to kill you. And it's the people who rise up and say, actually, no, you're not. <laughs> God worked through Jonathan today. He achieved a great salvation. And it says the people ransom him back. They basically swear an oath to the Lord, or an oath to Saul. As the Lord lives, over our dead bodies will you kill Jonathan. And verse 46 just trails off. They don't go for any kind of night attack. The Philistines retreat. And here's the picture we have of Saul. First, he's alienated. At the end of this chapter, Saul is alienated from the people. The people now trust his son more than they trust him. They disagreed with his oath. They openly defied him. He's alienated from the people. He's alienated from his son. He's on the verge of killing him. You must imagine that did some kind of damage to their relationship if your father was ready to put a sword through you. 
He's alienated from Samuel. Samuel is not present in this chapter. He has refused to help him. And of course, he's alienated from God. God isn't answering his prayers. God's not helping him, not giving him any guidance. Saul is on his own. By his own foolishness and rashness, Saul increasingly stands in this this circle of scorched earth. He's pushed everyone away. He's wreaking havoc with every poor and unwise decision. So he's alienated, but he's also reactive. Think about how he reacts in this passage. Oh, look, uh, Jonathan has won this victory. The Philistines are retreating. Oh, let's get the ark. What if we do that? Oh, it's taking too long. You know, let's just go and fight. Oh, I really want to pay the Philistines back. Oh, hey, everyone, stop eating till we we kill them all. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. Oh, God won't tell me what to do. Must be because someone sinned. Well, if it was Jonathan, we should kill him. And he just kind of like goes from one thing to the next. He lurches through this chapter piling foolishness on top of foolishness. He's not thinking ahead. He's not being wise. He's just sort, of, just sort of like living in the moment. Have you ever played a pinball machine? Kids, it's sort of like a video game, except in like real life, you've got to hit like real, real things and put real coins in to play them. But, but in a pinball machine, you start the game by you know, pulling that plunger back and it, it fires the ball onto the top of the machine. At the top of the machine, it starts hitting all these bumpers and bouncing off of things, and it's kind of chaos. Like, lights are lighting, dings are dinging, you know. When you play pinball, at least when I play pinball, uh, you don't think ahead. You just kind of react. You just kind of hit the flippers. You know, it's coming, and you hit the left flipper and the right flipper, and it's just things are happening. I think that's maybe the best way to understand Saul in this chapter. He's just hitting the flippers madly. What if we try this? What if we try that? Trying to keep things going. When the Apostle Paul comes along a few thousand years later, he writes to the Ephesian believers, and he tells these these young Christians, he says, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't be foolish, but understand the will of God. And if we take that little passage in Ephesians and compare it to this chapter, Saul is the opposite of what Christians are called to be. If you're a Christian, you're called to exercise wisdom in your life, not just responding and reacting to whatever comes your way, but, but Paul says, be, be, approach life as, as thoughtfully and carefully as you can. I know lots of you are in the season of raising little ones, but, and I know things can get crazy, but are you spending any time proactively figuring out, how can I love God and love my neighbors and love my family better? Are you spending just any time working on your life as opposed to just sort of living moment to moment in your life? Maybe this question will help. If someone wrote down your past week and like this chapter, would they conclude, oh, this person was walking in wisdom or do they just simply kind of pinball through their day? It's interesting because there isn't much concrete sin by Saul here. Like maybe, you know, here and there we can kind of point to a few things, but it definitely is this series of unwise, foolish, and short-sighted decisions. Whereas the Apostle Paul says, don't be unwise, but be wise. Now we've got to move to part three. A story like this, when you read it or when you think about it, can easily become a be less like Saul and more like Jonathan kind of story. And that's partly right, that's partly the point. The New Testament says all these Old Testament stories are written down for us partly as warnings, don't be like Saul, partly as encouragements, be more like Jonathan. But that principle, be less like Saul and more like Jonathan, it's insufficient as a gospel message. Like it's true, but it's actually not all of, all of the truth. 
Because that principle, it can tell you, this is how you should live, but it can't give you the desire or the power to live that way. And so we can't just end by saying, be less like Saul and more like Jonathan. We have to look at the third character of the story. Who is God? The unseen power behind all the parts of this story. And importantly for us, if you're saying, I want to change on the inside, I want to be a wiser person, I don't want to be so reactive, I want my heart, I want my desires to be different, well, this third character is the one you really need to know. Let me just point you to a few verses. Verse 6, as discussed, Jonathan tells us God can save by a few or by many. But if you look closely, Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. There's no force, there's no person, there's no idea that can hinder God from saving if he wants to save. And then Jonathan, of course, goes up to the Philistines expecting a sign, and God provides. The Philistines speak to Jonathan in exactly what he asked for. God provides a sign via the Philistines that kicks off this successful attack. Then look down at verse 15. After the attack, the Philistine camp is in uproar. There's an earthquake. Now, if you were here with us last weekend, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we had an earthquake twice in both of those stories. Sudden earthquakes, it's a sign. God is doing something extraordinary. God is showing up, and God panics the Philistines with his earthquake. And then in verse 20, the Philistines are fighting each other, and there's very great confusion. It's not directly attributed to God, but there's no other origin cited, and why would they fight each other? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But verse 23 Perhaps the most important, the narrator tells us, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord did. Not Jonathan, not the armor bearer, not Saul, not the host of Israelites who kind of come out of the nooks and crannies of the, uh, in the caves and the holes in the ground. No, God saved Israel. God was behind all of this. And even in the second part of the story, God's still there. He speaks to Saul with his silence. He answers Saul with the casting of lots. He's not absent from the story, but he's active and working. What does all this mean? It means this. When you walk in wisdom, God loves to answer prayer and to lead you and guide you. He promises his power and help to you. But it also means when you walk in foolishness and unwisdom, God has a way of speaking to you there as well. Sometimes God speaks to us with his absence and with his silence. He has ways of waking us up to the fact that he is not close. And beyond all that, the the grand purpose of God in all of 1 Samuel and beyond is to rescue his people. That's the big why underneath all of this. The, the, The big story of this chapter is the Philistines are oppressing Israel and they're running rampant and they're stealing and, and killing. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen. He's fulfilling ancient promises to his people. I'm going to bring you into a land and you're going to be safe and you're going to, I'm going to defeat your enemies. And sometimes he does it with Israel's help. And sometimes he does it despite Israel's resistance. But God is king. Yahweh is king. That is the lesson of this book. Saul is not doing so great. He's hiding in a cave. So God says, I will raise up the people I need to save the rest of the people. And in a really dramatic irony, when Jesus comes to provide the lasting and final salvation for all of his people, the people don't step in to save their hero from the king. It's actually the opposite, right? The people raise their voices to condemn the hero. Instead of of facing punishment for his own accidental oath-breaking, Jesus dies in place of all who broke faith with God. When it comes to Jesus, it isn't the people that ransom the hero, it's the hero who gives up his life to ransom the people. 
And with the advent of Jesus, God again rescues his people. And now by the spirit of Jesus, he walks alongside all of us to help us desire wisdom and walk in thoughtful, careful, and righteous days. So the invitation this morning is to Jesus to be rescued, to be forgiven, and to be empowered. May he have mercy on us. Let's pray. God, we thank you, and we are grateful for what you have done for the last, or for thousands of years, saving your people, rescuing, sometimes by many, sometimes by few, but we believe and we affirm the words of Jonathan that nothing can hinder you from what you want to do. So we'd once again ask that you would save save us, save our city and our nation, that you would move and you'd work and you'd call many to yourself. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.